Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Sean Kane. And I'm Claire Armistead. This week, music journalist and writer Luke Turner takes Claire for a wander through the trees and history of Epping Forest, talking about his book, Out of the Woods. The funny thing is, I thought I'd written a book about forests, and then I read it again, and I realised I hadn't. I'd written a book about sexuality and religion. Claire, you've always enjoyed nature writing, haven't you? Yeah, I absolutely love nature writing, and I, and I was thinking about why it is. And I think one of the reasons is that it relies on really detailed observation, mm. and it takes people out of themselves. And that's actually quite refreshing, because we're all so solipsistic now, mm. and <laughs> everything's so internalised, and just to actually really engage and watch something and report on the existence of an other and poetry is particularly good at this and mm. just you know look at think right back to John Clare or, or Ted Hughes and possibly the greatest poet of all writing today discuss is Alice <laughs> Oswald who I had the great privilege of interviewing a couple of years ago and here she is reading from her epic poem The Dart which tracks this West Country River back to its source through all the things that rivers go through which isn't always nature it's it's industry and and, you know, there are fishermen as well as kingfishers. But this just gives a sense of the extraordinary richness of her observation. Listen. A lark spinning around one note, splitting and mending it. And I find you in the reeds, a trickle coming out of a bank, a foal of a river. One step-width water of linked stones, trills in the stones, glides in the trills. Eels in the glides, in each eel, a finger width of sea. In walking boots, with twenty pounds on my back, spare socks, compass, map, water purifier so I can drink from streams, seeing the cold floating spread out above the morning. Tent, torch, chocolate, not much else. Which will make it longish, almost unbearable between my evening meal and sleeping when I've got as far as stopping, sitting in the tent door with no book, no saucepan, not so much as a stick to support the loneliness. One of the big hits of the last few years has been Robert McFarlane and Jackie Morris's The Lost Words, which is a sort of big picture book full of poems that are celebrating words from the natural world that have fallen out of our lexicon and sort of designed to be reintroducing words to children who may have sort of lost touch with, with the natural world, perhaps don't go outside and don't get taken on trips through nature as much as perhaps their parents did. Yeah, it's funny because when I first saw this book, I thought it was, I just didn't buy it because it's words like conquer and otter and kingfisher, which 
you know, it hadn't occurred to me that actually maybe children didn't know those words anymore because yeah. they don't see conkers and otters and kingfishers. So <laughs> I gather otters are making a bit of a comeback. Um, but it is a, a fabulous, huge, great book sort of with these brilliant gilded illustrations by mm. Jackie Morris. And the poems are spell poems. So the idea is the enchantment and magic. And they very cleverly mirror the animal or the object that they are they're writing about. This is just to give you a very short example here it is sadly we don't have Jackie Morris's fabulous illustrations <laughs> acorn as flake is to blizzard as curve is to sphere as knot is to net as one is to many as coin is to money, as bird is to flock, as rock is to mountain, as drop is to fountain, as spring is to river, as glint is to glitter, as near is to far, as wind is to weather, as feather is to flight, as light is to star, as kindness is to good, so acorn is to wood. So that was Acorn, and Susanna, our um, producer, had four clips to choose from, and I am very pleased that she chose Acorn, because as everybody who listens to this podcast regularly will know, I am a complete tree nut. And, <laughs> and I, I was trying to think when it actually started, and I think it all goes back to a book called Pookie the Flying Rabbit, or a series of books, picture books, where all the little trees had little doors and windows and chimneys with smoke coming out and rabbits and fairies oh, that and sounds pixies right up my alley. It. it was so <laughs> they were so cool in fact I was looking I was just looking at the at some of the illustrations on the internet today when I was researching this and it just made me feel all sort of come over all sort of sort of shivery and funny you know, it took me right back to my absolute that sense of absolute enchantment that you I got really, as a child yeah I was just I really missed that feeling of like having just a book with lots of elaborate illustrations and just staring at them for hours mm -hmm. and I probably got way more credit than I deserved actually for being a big reader as a kid I probably actually wasn't reading any words I was just staring at intricate illustrations nothing nothing wrong with <laughs> nothing wrong with reading pictures but the the one result of that I lived in this rather treeless landscape in mm. in the north of Nigeria so my idea of forest isn't of the scary Hansel and Gretel type it's absolutely a, a forest as a place of enchantment and mm. I think that's why I'm so I'm so hung up on them there was a really good thriller which actually didn't get that much attention in this country though it's huge on the continent and it's called 16 Trees of the Somme it's by the Norwegian Lars Mutting and it's it's a set in France Norway and the Shetlands mm. and Lars Mutting wrote the 2016 sleeper hit Norwegian Wood chopping stacking and drying with the Norwegian way <laughs> which always makes me giggle every time I say that title um, and what's wonderful about this thriller is that the key to the ancestral mystery is contained in the growth rings of a group of trees on the Somme oh, God. <laughs> so my, that's my kind of tree <laughs> my kind of book and then of course there's Peter Wallenben's Hidden Life of Trees what they feel, how they communicate, I which remember, is another sleeper hit. Yeah, I remember when we were at the Hay Festival, and I don't know, th I don't think you'd read the book at that point, and he was speaking. I was you, very skeptical. Again, skeptical. You spotted it, didn't you? Well, I, I just remember it going like that. Sounds vaguely interesting because it was all, it was all very, uh, you know, we're going to learn how trees talk to each other and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, oh, that's quite a nice idea. And then you went along and you came back just raving, and <laughs> I just remember that you came back and you were telling 
something with me about how like trees poo, which I just <laughs> thought was the funniest they thing. They hold hands under earth. Yeah. They, they hold roots. It's really sweet. It's, it's actually the cutest thing. And <laughs> it was picked up. I bet you that Richard Powers read it before he wrote The Overstory, oh, which really? was his book, a shortlisted novel last year, which was what I absolutely love The Overstory. Because one of the storylines is about a, a botanist who's banished from the scientific community after publishing a paper arguing just the things that that book argued, i.e. trees communicate with each other. And it's a it's really clever novel because it's structured like a tree with rings of story which sort of grow closer and closer, nine characters, and the, the, their story rings grow closer and closer as it goes along. Hey, here, let's have a little listen to it. Years pass. The brown trunks start to grey. Lightning in a parched fall, with so few prairie targets tall enough to bother with, hits one of the remaining chestnut pair. Wood that might have been good for everything, from cradles to coffins, goes up in flames. Not enough survives to make so much as a three-legged stool. The sole remaining chestnut goes on flowering, but its blooms have no more blooms to answer them. No mates exist for countless miles around, and a chestnut though both male and female, will not serve itself. Yet still, this tree has a secret tucked into the thin, living cylinder beneath its bark. Its cells obey an ancient formula. Keep still. Wait. Something in the lone survivor knows that even the ironclad law of now can be outlasted. There's work to do. Star work, but earthbound all the same. Or, as the nurse to the Union dead writes, stand cool and composed before a million universes. As cool and composed as wood. So I've just been giving you all my enthusiasms. Do you have any in <laughs> well, this area? Well, the funny thing is I was thinking about nature writing and I realised that I've, I'm very ashamed. There's a gap in my reading. I, I've barely read any. And I was actually wondering whether one of my f most favourite books in the world, uh, Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck, actually counts as nature writing because a lot of it is him in his car with his lovely poodle Charlie driving through America and just sort of raging at how much industry is encroaching on nature. So it's almost like the... The absence of nature in seen in, in writing seen from a car. <laughs> yeah, you're and such it's a, you're such a snowflake. <laughs> such a snowflake. <laughs> yeah, so I, it's one of my most favourite books, though, and I think you're absolutely right, though, that that's what it is. It's about making humans feel small again, and it's about that observing the the bigger picture. Even though in Steinbeck's case, it's outside the window. Yeah, and a picture he doesn't very much like, <laughs> but it's a great book. So yeah, just before we heard from Alice Oswald reading from her book-length poem Dart, Robert McFarlane's The Lost Words read by Guy Garvey and The Overstory by Richard Powers read by Susan Torren. With thanks to Audible for providing those excerpts. Coming up, Luke Turner takes us into the woods. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hold up. 
Luke Turner, co-founder of independent music website The Quietus, turned to nature when he found himself at a complicated crossroads in his life. A five-year relationship had ended and he knew that something wasn't quite right. He took to the forests to see what he could make of it all. So Claire, why was it important that you needed to do this interview in Epping Forest? Were you just bunking off? Yeah, partly because I wanted to go to Epping Forest. <laughs> I was very jealous that you did this. No, I love it. I love it. And it, I mean, what, what's interesting about it is the part that Luke took us to isn't a part that's very familiar to me. I go every Christmas with my family, as I say in the podcast. But I go to a very woody bit with meanders, ancient meanders mm. and lots of wonderful old trees. But this bit was it was sort of very heathy and scrubby and... No, it's just so interesting, isn't it? I think that the, the whole idea of a forest is so, it's so deeply ingrained in our psyche and it means such different things to different people. Mm. Well, so, as someone that's not, not British and someone that's relatively new to London, the idea that there is this big forest within the boundaries of London is kind of amazing to me. Can you explain to, sort of, to people that aren't familiar with Epping Forest what the geography of it is? And... Yeah, it's around the north of London and it includes Henry VIII's hunting lodge Mm. And so, so it's an area that has a great history because it was where kings could go from London and do a bit of hunting and then get back in time to do all the important stuff Vacation of being spot. a king. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the great iconic forests of the UK, and you know the other one, obvious one, being Robin Hood's Sherwood Forest. <laughs> and so Luke grew up near Epping Forest, didn't he? Yeah, his his grandparents lived there, and it's it's obviously played a really important part in his sense of his identity. In fact, he now lives quite close. He's bought a place just down the road from it as well. And although he comes back now to do conservation work, there it also plays a darker role in his in his psyche because it was where he went during an unhappy time in his life. That was where he found his his comfort. But it, but it, it's also quite it's quite a scary place in some ways. So so it, it stands in quite a complicated relationship to his own negotiation with his own sanity, <laughs> if I can say that, Luke. <laughs> well, we join you and Luke as he prepares to read from his book and you look for a quiet place in this peaceful idyll. Um, should we go this way because it's a bit less boggy? There is always traffic noise, isn't there? I mean, because is actually, I always quite like that about the forest. Yeah, it's something about the forest, isn't it? Yeah. That that you're never very far from the M25 or, or the M25 or Epping New Road, which kind of cuts right through the middle. In a, a, it's sort of a bit of a shame, really, that they built they built because it, it was such a notorious area for highwaymen. Dick Turpin was very active here and um, did all sorts of. He tortured an old lady for her gold. Was the the legend. So they built Epping New Road right through the middle of the forest and it's just a bit of a bit of a rat run these days. It was a dreary day in the middle of a mild January and across the road the trunks of Epping Forest were an unforgiving grey, dormant now until spring, lifeless as sculptures made of steel slag. Outside the kitchen door, chaffinches and coltits negotiated their shifts on a container stuffed with pumpkin seeds. My eyes were drawn to a ghostly outline on the window where the attack of a sparrowhawk, not spotting the panes of glass that separated it from the trees of Epping Forest, on a feeding songbird, had thumped to a premature conclusion, its near death captured with an imprint of oily wings. We're here in Epping Forest, Luke, and it is not a grey January day, it's a bright sunny February day. And we're underneath a tree, a, a rather fine tree. Well, what is it exactly? It is a scrubby oak tree, not kind of your 
traditional imagined English proud oak standing tall and strong for hundreds of years. It's very low beast this but it's a lovely tree I think it's one kind of we're up in Chingford where one of the busiest bits of the forest and you always get kids climbing all over this tree it's an ideal climbing tree this one so you, you know that the trees personally in this bit of the forest in a way I know I have sort of favorite ones and familiar ones and and things like that but I see them all I, as these kind of this great army of individuals in Epping Forest they're such they're such distinctive trees because because of the way they were managed a lot of them and they all have these very human forms and so there's I think I sort of see them all as this great crowd hanging around which is why sometimes I think the forest can be a bit perturbing. Now the first thing to say about this bit of Epping Forest is that it isn't a forest (laughs) it's got this tree and it's got a few other trees but it's sort of scrubland basically and one of the points you make in your book is that we have what we think of as forest isn't actually what forest is. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. We're here on the edge of Chingford Plain. Just behind us is the hunting lodge, Queen Elizabeth's hunting lodge, which was actually built by Henry VIII, a beautiful um, three-storey Tudor building. And that looks out over this this open expanse of land. And it's forest as in the true meaning of forest, which is the sort of the king's hunting ground or the, the hunting ground for the uh, aristocracy. And the king would have got up there and watched the sort of pursuit of the deer on this land below and uh, you know that was under the forest laws which were extremely strictly enforced about who had rights to hunt who had rights to the timber and also importantly for the history of Epping Forest who had rights to cut the trees for firewood which was the commoners the ordinary people could go into the forest and cut and cut trees and graze their animals which is why it used to be a far more open landscape a lot more of the forest looked like it does just below us this very open area with a few trees scattered around it's sort of woodland pasture which is a kind of very unique landscape of British and well, and European ancient woodland of which there's not that much left and it Chingford Plain below us if you look at pictures from the 19th century it's a lot bigger and the trees kind of gradually appear rather than it's sort of encroaching in. The, 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 these landscapes are disappearing into the forest, or the forest as we see it, as in a load of trees. <laughs> so there's a long history of, of humans relating to what to forests, which I'm doing air quotes from yeah. because we've got this <laughs> contested concept of what forests are. And, and one of the important things which you referred to then was this thing called lopping rights, which I'd never actually heard of till I read your book. Yeah, this, so this was the commoners had the right to go into the forest to, to lop the trees and take the wood for fires or building or what have you. And you did this on a cycle of every 13 years, which created pollards, which is where you have a sort of the tree trunk up to about eight or nine feet, and you cut it there. And this stops the deer grazing the new shoots, deer and cattle. And because of that, the trees grow up in this very strange way because you cut them and then they regrow and they grow up sort of almost like kind of fingers coming from a, a hand or a mop head, people have described it as. And it actually prolongs the tree's life. And if you lop a tree, it can make it last for two or three times its, its usual lifespan. Now, this forest was saved by the actions of a man called Thomas Willingale who came and um, when the forest had been enclosed for felling he asserted his right to lop and, that, and he got arrested and that became a court case that started off the campaign to, to save Epping Forest. So it's this, this sort of working class rebellion really was at the core of saving this landscape. Unfortunately when it was saved by the Corporation London the people lost their right to lop which means that the trees then grew up into these very fantastical forms 
with big trunk, big lots of five or six big branches coming out of the pollard bowl, it's called, and all these warty, unusual shapes. You say that it was saved by working-class action, but there was also a disreputable aristocrat, which is quite appropriate given its subsequent history. Uh, yeah, he, he, there was, it's a very, very long and convoluted legal case that made this, that enabled this to happen, but there was an awful nephew of the Duke of Wellington who married the richest woman in England, um, and she, she was the heiress to the Wanstead estate in the south of the forest, and he basically spent all of her money on gambling and rakish behaviour, and he died eating a boiled egg, and nobody lamented him, the obituaries say. He was just a, he was, he had no redeeming qualities, and he'd just destroyed her fortune. But there was one tiny bit of land that her family had kept onto, which was a farm uh, in the south of the forest land, and the Corporation of London needed to build a new cemetery, because the cemeteries in central London were corpses were sort of bubbling out of the ground. It was horrible. And so they bought this farm to build their new cemetery, which is still there, my granny and granddad of ashes were scattered in that cemetery and that meant that they had they, there was forest land so they had rights of common ownership over the entire forest their grazing rights extended over the entire forest so they were able to use the ancient forest laws to challenge the landowners who were enclosing the forest to cut it down and say you know we, this is all forest land the ancient laws apply you can't enclose it and fell it and that's how the forest was saved thanks to this awful man and his uh, boiled egg spendthrift unpleasantness. <laughs> well, so much for the history. Let's let's walk now, and, yeah. and and then you can tell us a little bit more about your particular relationship as you recount in Out of the Woods. Okay. If we go, I tell you, let's go up this way a little bit, and we can look over to the High Beach Church because you can see it from up here. High Beach, yes. High Beach plays quite a big yeah. a big part in it. Now, the other part of your book, apart from this wonderful natural history, is about your own relationship to the forest and your growing up, and particularly your bisexuality. And it involves quite a lot of bad behaviour in the forest. <laughs> and I'm very shocked by this because I have, for the last 20 years or so, every Christmas day, I come down with my innocent little children and walk through Epping Forest. And I shall never look at a piece of tissue again in the same way. <laughs> What way were you looking at tissue before? <laughs> well, I was obviously thinking that there were lots of little children walking through who had to blow their noses. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, this is the other side of the forest is, you know, well, and, and I think that it's something that's been lost in our, a lot of our conversations around woodland landscapes is that they were other places, you know, they were, you know, forest, the original Latin word, the etymology of forest comes from outside. So it was, a forest was a place of outsiders. It was away from the city walls. And a lot of the founding myths of our Western civilizations come from the separation of, of city and forest. So the forest was always where outcasts went and where people were rejected by society. And also, I think, where people went f for sex, really. I mean, that's a lot, a lot of that's in Midsummer Night's Dream, in Shakespeare. You know, there's a huge amount of of that as part of the plot devices and in, our, in a lot of our older literature like Scarlet Letter and things like that and that's something that's kind of we don't really talk about anymore and the book because it, it ended up being a, more about me due to the time I was writing was a difficult and somewhat turbulent time getting to grips with uh, things that I never dealt with properly uh, and I should have done by the time I was 36 that became about issues I'd had around sexuality and 
abusive situations I'd found myself in and how that had then impacted on sort of adult sexuality, basically. And the forest weirdly became the landscape to explore that. And, and that wasn't deliberate. It wasn't a sort of contrived thing for the book. It just happened because I'd become obsessed with this place and then I had to start unpicking some other obsessions that I had that were less healthy. So, so you could say instead of cottaging, perhaps we should invent a word, coppicing. Coppicing. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, that that's what we do with the conservation volunteers, is we, sometimes we do a bit of coppicing, but I think that people might get confused. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, you know, in the forest there are two big gay cruising areas, in, one in the north, one in the south. And, you know, I, I, I agree with you that I think there's, a, there's an element to that which is I, it's sort of disrespectful of other people who are using the landscape and indiscreet and it involves lots of litter and it's quite unpleasant. But on the other hand, there are a lot of men who ha who've been forced by cultural religion or just, you know, the general homophobia that still exists in society. They can't be themselves and when they go into the woods, they are able to get contact with a part of their sexuality that is you know, persecuted or oppressed. You know, obviously, I'm not saying that's always a good thing. That has consequences often for people left at home and, and so on. But there's a nuance to these landscapes that I've, I thought was really interesting. And, you know, it, it was there was a time when the whole of the country would have been conceived in the woodland and in nature because we all, you know, everybody lived in the countryside before the Industrial Revolution and everybody was crammed into squalid little timber frame houses before they were desirable with all their animals and their relatives so everyone was probably sneaking off into the bushes and I, I think that's an important part of uh, the British nature tradition. <laughs> but there is for this particular place that sort of outlaw connection with the forest keeps echoing down through literature so for example you have poor old John Clare who was interned in High Beach which was a privately run mental home setting off across the forest then even right down to a couple of years ago there was a very good debut novel by a colleague of mine called Sam Brooks called The Clocks in This House All Tell Different Times which was about a story that his grandmother had told him which was about being taken to Epping Forest for basically to be abused as children mm. in the forest the sort of this place of where, where there was no law no, and nobody could see what was going on. Yeah I mean I think that's the that's the thing there's um it's a place of extremes, the forest. It's, you know, it is really terrible things happen within it, but then it's also beautiful things, but not necessarily just the kind of, oh, I'm in nature, isn't it lovely? Like today, it is an uplifting place, but 12 hours' time, it won't be an uplifting place at all. It'll be absolutely terrifying because it'll be dark and you'll see strange lights going through the woods and all this sort of thing. So as you have come to terms with yourself and all those the issues that you had that you describe so so beautifully in the book, has your relationship with the forest changed? Yeah, it has, and I'm I'm quite surprised by that because I, I didn't I I didn't see the book as being something which had a redemption narrative. I find books like that sometimes quite frustrating because I don't think life is that simple. It's a, and particularly forests are a far more ambiguous place, and they still are. It still is to me, but mostly when I've been coming back up here now, I do. I, I, I see it in a far more positive light and I feel a lot more happy within it than I did during the writing period. And a lot of that has been to do with doing the conservation work and understanding the landscape better and and actually going through areas where they've really cleared out all the holly and all the silver birch and it's just open and you've got the pollards lifting up and it's very beautiful. But I've definitely 
because I don't like these sort of easy solutions and it's sort of a bit odd and I feel a bit guilty saying, well, actually, it's, it's had a hugely positive impact. And when I come here now, I feel like a different person. Um, but it's, in a way, it's, it's true. There's a lot of, as well as the living stuff, there's a lot of dead stuff, isn't there? In it? I mean, for example, we're underneath this beautiful old oak and it's, it's really in quite a bad state, some of its limbs, and there's a great big branch lying down on the floor. Why has nobody cleared? Why haven't you been busy clearing away this with your conservation group? Well, so I think that back in the day, they, this would have been hauled out very quickly to be chopped up for firewood or what have you. But you look at uh, that big, you know, it's a very big branch, like 20 metre branch of oak. And you can see all the way along it, this fungi starting to grow out of the, out of the wood, which will have a big part in breaking down the wood matter and that will be and that branch will be absolutely full of beetles and all sorts of different creatures which then you know they're a huge part of the forest ecosystem so now stuff tends to be left behind when it drops off like this but you know this is a place of I mean, there's more probably more dead things around us than there are living and you know forests are i think giant carpet of death i call it in the book in a slightly goth moment but <laughs> <laughs> Should we go, let's go down, let's go down the hill a bit. Yeah, so here you can see High Beach Church poking up over the distant ah, horizon. And that's a tiny little needle. A tiny little, tiny little spike, and that's a this hugely significant place that was a bit another obsession in the book. I kind of would come into the forest and walk towards it. And we'd always had this rumour, part of my fascination with the forest was that there was this room that we were descended from an aristocrat at High Beach who'd had an affair with his housekeeper or servant and they'd had a son who'd got promoted mysteriously quickly through the ranks of the, uh, the staff and uh, had gone on to be a farmer at High Beach and had done quite well in life. And I, that part of the book was sort of looking into that story. I think because of the, the issues around sexuality had a lot to do with kind of growing up with religious faith and feeling guilt around sexuality and sin and shame. And I think I was trying to prove this true say well we were we were we were descended from immorality therefore you know how can it how can these supposedly immoral things be bad in a kind of quite simplistic way in a way i suppose so, so you found a record of your great 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 grandmother or something having had an illegitimate child yeah i mean that's the um delving back i managed to trace trace the great great grandfather and his mother to this area and it seems that that rumor was actually was actually true and I found that there is a there's a lot of my ancestors actually buried up in the churchyard up there and High Beach also has which we've sort of alluded to has this history as a place where an asylum was run yeah in the days of John Clare but then later it became a, a hospital and Siegfried Sassoon was there and Edward Thomas as well so two of the great poets and also gay poets <laughs> Well, yeah, and certainly secret to see. That's that, that's true. Um, and then there was also just over, just to the south of us here, T. Lawrence had a hut, where him and his friend were going to publish the Pillars of Wisdom, and that hut is now in the forest headquarters, which is that where that um, tower is on that horizon, and they, it's sort of used as a store. It's an interesting, sort of L-shaped, tiled roof place used as a lawnmower store and that was a straight I, I read all the letters between Lawrence and his friend and his friend obviously was deeply in love with him it was a I don't know whether it was a unrequited love or whether they had an affair but there does seem to be a, yeah there's a lot of homoeroticism and gay lives around the, the forest. Is that because it, this thing about it being forest being liminal? Maybe I mean I think probably in the case of all those people it was just 
the practical thing in that this is one of the closest bits of open green space to London. So if you're going to convalesce, <laughs> you, you might as well come here. It's probably a bit cheaper than Hampstead or some of the other places where people would have gone. So I think it's possibly a coincidence in that, but it's definitely there is definitely that aspect. I mean, the, the, the number of sort of countercultural people who intersect with Epping Forest, like the sort of experimental theatre director, Ken Campbell, lived on the edge of the forest and when he died his body was dragged into the forest by his dogs uh, on a sled and then in my story Throbbing Gristle the avant-garde music group from the 70s they're a recurring presence in the forest strangely Cozy Fanny Tutti from from Throbbing Gristle did nude photo shoots in the forest in the 70s and Genesis Peoridge who founded the group with Cozy went to the same school as my dad which was a pivotal thing for me you know, my dad's a Methodist minister, Genesis Peoridge is a sort of far-out radical extremist, um, and they both had the forest as their early inspiration, but went in very different directions, and I found that rather interesting, really. So your parents' church was in this area as well? No, no. Um, I mean, they grew, my family all grew up in Loughton, just on the far side of the forest. But dad did preach a lot around this, uh, this area when, when he was younger, yeah. So I'm mean, quite interested in that religious side of it as well. Well, I mean, that's... That's the funny thing is, I thought I'd written a book about forests and then I read it again and I realised I hadn't. I'd written a book about sexuality and religion. And it's odd because I never, you know, grew up with a, a, in a very Christian family, never, even as sometimes I might have wanted to, wanted to reject religion because of the kind of shame and that it caused me around sexuality. But I just, I've never been able to, to do that. And to me, the forest and religion are fascinating spaces and very paradoxical spaces, both of them. And, yeah, that ended up being a central theme of the book and one that people seem to really respond to, which I was quite surprised about. And it's not a typical story of coming out because you didn't reject your parents. And I, I was really struck by that. Even, you know, your relationship with your mother is very, very strong in it. Even all the thing, even when she's cross with you or disagrees with the way you're behaving. Yeah, I mean, that was... I, I had an amazing childhood, an amazing upbringing. My parents are amazing people and... I was shown nothing but love, and that was a very Christian love. You know, that was all through the prism of faith. So well, I couldn't re reject them, really. And I know, you know I feel very lucky because some people have been through far tougher uh, experiences of growing up in that kind of household, and I can see why the instinct there would be there to, 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 to totally reject it, but I was never had to sort of make that that choice, really. And they showed me a love of nature and the forest and... And, and that was all bound up with, with God in many ways. So you're talking about love of nature and the forest, but here we are and you can hear, as we the said... The police helicopter's off on the its, police one of its helicopter. missions. Yeah. You can hear the traffic, the planes coming through across the, uh, when the airspace sort of moves, doesn't it? But every now and then yeah. there's, a, there's a plane. Traffic on all sides. So, it, so it's, it's sort of... It's not really nature. or It's nature living cheek by jowl with the most speedy forms of... Of civilization. Yeah, and, and, and I really love that about the forest. That, to me, is what makes it so incredible, is that you've got the police helicopter base, you've got the M25, you've got aeroplanes from City Airport. That one will be going down into Heathrow. With the white uh, smoke trails across Yeah, and then the you've got the really, really high up ones going, you know, just crossing England. They'll be able to see the whole of the south of Britain, but the, you know, that British Airways plane... I was a bit of a geek about these things. They'll <laughs> be going into Heathrow. And I, and I actually think that's what makes the forest special because it, it reinforces that this is, this is not nature as we think some untouched place. I mean, this entire landscape is made by humans. The, the, these trees were, you know, the, the dominant species in pre-Saxon times was small-leaf lime trees. 
Uh, and I think it was over 90% the pollen record seems to suggest. And now there's no small leaf lime trees at all. All of this was created by human intervention and selection and, and woodland management. And I just love that about Epping Forest is it teaches us that, you know, right by one of the biggest cities of the kind of modern world, well, less, less than it was, but um, it was the Victorian period when London was the biggest city that it was saved in. It teaches us that this, what we see as nature is something we're involved with and have to be involved with and need to see ourselves as part of and not separate from. And I think there's a huge lesson that the forest can give us in that. And I wish more people would kind of come up here and, and explore that. Can you believe we made that recording in February? Oh, you can you can sort of hear the sunshine, can't you? <laughs> Everyone's very cheerful. <laughs> um, Out of the Woods is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. In next week's podcast, we are heading to the hot, sweaty, shouty, exhilarating and exhausting exhibition halls of London Book Fair, where we will be scouting for the books that we'll all be reading next year. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page and subscribe or review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Sean Kay. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.